Welcome to Changemakers, a podcast from APH. We're talking to people from around the world who are creating positive change in the lives of people who are blind or have low vision. Here's your host. Hello, and welcome to Changemakers. I'm APH's Public Relations Manager, Sarah Brown, and on this episode, we're talking about and to the narrators of APH. We're going to learn some of the history of the Talking Book Studios and hear from some well-known narrators. This is a really exciting episode because if you just heard the beginning of this podcast, you might hear that voice a little bit later. Up first, we have APH's studio director, Maggie Davis, and APH's museum director, Mike Hudson, here to fill us in on the history and everything else in between. It's a really rich history, and I hope you all enjoy it. Hello, Maggie, and hello, Mike, and welcome to Changemakers. Hi, thanks for having us. Good morning. So, Maggie and Mike, can first off, can you just detail what your position is and what it is that you do here at APH? Uh, sure thing. Um, uh, as studio director, um, I oversee the talking book studio at APH. So I manage a team of professional audiobook narrators or voice actors, uh, along with a team of audiobook editors. And um, I'm Mike Hudson, and I'm the director of the museum here at APH. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. APH, how did the talking, the talking books and the booths, how did all of this become, come to be? So that's kind of my, my area, so I'll start with that one. Um, talking books, audio books for readers who are blind or low vision started with the American Foundation for the Blind in the late 1920s. And their director of research, Robert Irwin, was very interested in applying phonograph technology for readers who were blind. Irwin himself was not a very good Braille reader. And so he was looking for an alternative way to make reading easy and fun. And uh, actually, uh, Edison, the inventor of the phonograph, one of his one of his reasons, one of his his purposes that he thought the original phonograph technology might be useful for was for readers who were blind. So this was something that had been kicking around since even since that technology had been invented. So Irwin creates a research lab. They figure out how to get more material on the side of a record. Uh, we call those 33 and a third long playing records. And those were invented at the American Foundation for the Blind. And he also figured out how to make a record out of a flexible enough material so that you could ship it through the mail. Um, so the modern uh, uh, phonograph record uh, was basically invented by AFB. And uh, uh, the printing house actually did not want to get into uh, recording for people that were blind. Irwin was begging us to do it because he needed partners. But the printing house was busy pumping out Braille and and uh, and uh, and other other things like that and, and really didn't have any any room at our at our plant to do it. But Irwin eventually convinced our uh, superintendent at the time, A.C. Ellis, that there was going to be a tremendous market out there for people who were going to lose their vision but would never really be good Braille readers. And so in 1936, Irwin convinced Ellis to get into it and APH installed their first recording studios and all the equipment needed to press vinyl records. 
Um, and so our first record was recorded that year. It was Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, you know, where the sailor wakes up on the beach and the little people have him tied down. That was our first book. It was recorded by this radio pioneer named Hugh Sutton here in Louisville. Um, and then we hired uh, Terry Hayes Sales was our first female reader. Um, and a guy named George Patterson, who would read for us for 50 years, came on uh, there in the 1930s as well. And so we we kind of accumulated this small staff of, of uh, very wonderful voices uh, from the beginning. And uh, lots of early radio and television people here in Louisville actually also read on the side for talking books at the American Printing House for the Blind. So, so uh, for 50 years, we our, our records came out on rigid vinyl. Uh, in the 1970s and 80s, we started releasing records on flexible vinyl, which some older folks may remember getting on the back of uh, of uh, they may remember getting flexible records on the back of uh, cereal boxes. Uh, then in the 1970s, we switched over to cassettes, audio cassettes. Uh, in the 2000s, we switched over to making flash drive cartridges. Our books came on flash drive cartridges. And today, our books don't come on any physical medium at all. They're all digital. So, okay, speaking of that, since you mentioned digital digital books, so that's how today's books are. They went from records, those little LPs, to full-on digital. So just the whole evolution of that is insane. A tremendous amount of technological advance, uh, and, it, and it just technology change continues to accelerate. You know, so we made rigid vinyl for forty years or fifty years. We made cassettes for forty years. We only made flash drive cartridges for about ten years. Uh, so you know, the 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 way that we consume uh, audio media continues to to evolve and change. So, so no eight tracks, <laughs> no eight tracks, and and no compact discs either. <laughs> whoa, whoa, okay, yeah. no CDs. I would have assumed that in there too, but no, no eight tracks. Right, but think, up. but but it's important to understand the way the the roots of the program are. Is most of our recording is done on contract for the National Library Service, which is part of the Library of Congress, and basically they have made a deal with all the publishers of this material that uh, we will protect their copyrights. And so all of our recordings are all have always been protected in one way or another. And, and compact discs are really hard to protect. I mean, most everybody who ever owned a CD can remember popping oh, it into their computer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But like, the, like the audio cassettes, for instance, they were recorded on four tracks and so you needed a special player, a four-track player, and for them to work. The flash drive cartridges the same way. They were uh, copy protected, and you needed a special player that you get only from the National Library Service in order to be able to play them. So there was always kind of this level of protection on things, and CDs didn't provide that protection. Wow. I did not know that. I did not know that. And you brought up the National Library Service for the Blind and the Print Disabled. Maggie, can you talk a little bit more about the connection that APH has with them? Sure. Um, we have worked in partnership with the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled for a very long time. Um, I think since the advent of the Talking Book Program, um, 1938, Maggie, was our first Thank contract you. within a list. That's, I knew it was in the 30s. I didn't know the year. Thank you, Mike. Um, 
So yeah, we work for them on a contract basis. All of the talking books that we produce are for their collection. Okay. And Maggie, talk a little bit more about the studio. Talk about all the things that the studio does. It's a lot. Yes, we do a lot. Um, in addition to recording books for the National Library Service, we also provide um, accessibility through audio for other mediums. So uh, we are working right now on a contract where we record audio description for educational videos. Um, we've also recorded tests to make those accessible to those who can't read uh, the print versions. Um other miscellaneous things like um, uh, instructional videos, uh, instructional, you know, audio. Um, we also contribute um, quite a lot of audio content for the various products that APH produces. And talk about just the, the number of studio editors and narrators that APH has. How many are there? Um, right now, we have nine audiobook editors. Um, on staff. Those are our full-time workers. We also have around 15 narrators. Um, They kind of work in rotation, um, just depending on what material we have available. Um, That'll kind of determine who's, who's actively reading. Now, now when it comes to making a, to, to doing a book, can you talk about just the thought process with the production? Like, is that you who casts that, you know, maybe do you get the book and say, okay, this is a, a children's book. I'm going to cast this narrator for this book. And maybe this is more of an adult book. So I'm going to cast this particular narrator for this book. What is that like? What is the process? Um, I mean, you've, you hit the nail on the head. That's pretty much the process. <laughs> um, I take a look at the list of books we have. Um, I took a look at the calendar. Really, that's, I mean, to be honest, it's the boring part of the job, but it's a lot of time spent looking at the calendar. Um, And I see who's available and who would be the best fit for the material. So we do have a handful of voices that are particularly good um, with the children's books or with, um, I don't know, like a a thriller or uh, the cowboy Western type novels. Um, we also have narrators who only read nonfiction because their voice really just it fits that yeah. genre a little bit better. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and and there's various skill sets along with that. So, you know, is is this reader particularly good at uh, languages? Not necessarily not necessarily fluency, but um, do they make it sound? convincing um yeah there's it's a lot to consider now how many hours go into recording a full-length book um so there's there's many steps involved in the production of a book beyond just time in the studio um for an average full-length book um we're probably talking about 700 minutes um or like 11 hours of completed material. So you can easily multiply that by two to get your time spent in the studio. Um, so let's say 24 to 30 hours in the studio. Um, and that doesn't consider the preparation and research time or the post-production work either, because we, we not only record the books, but we also proofread the books as someone's listening to them uh, in full after they've been recorded. And then we also produce the actual audio book, the completed uh, talking book for the, for the um, 
reader. So that is its own time-consuming process. So the the books hang around for, I'd say, probably a good two months, um, an average length book. It takes about two months from start to finish. Wow, two months. Okay. Now, Mike, APH used to produce talking books on vinyl records. Can you talk about the impact that APH had on the vinyl record industry at large? Well, absolutely. It kind of, I mean, it goes back to Robert Irwin when, when, when he, at, and this was at the American Foundation for the Blind, when, when, when he wanted to uh, explore the use of phonograph records for audiobooks for blind readers. At the time, phonograph records came on 78 RPM uh, records with one song on each disc. Okay, the discs were very brittle. They were made out of shellac. If you dropped them, they broke. Right. Um, And by the time Irwin was done, he had invented what we call the LP record. Uh, And so when APH gets into the record, you know, the recording and pressing business in 1936, uh, the music industry is not using uh, LPs. Right. They're they're still releasing them on these 78s. That wouldn't happen until the 1940s, really after World War II. Um, so uh, LPs really kind of changed the way that uh, you received music. You know, in the in the uh, before that, you got music on on just uh, a series of uh, individual discs that would be put into a kind of almost like a photo album, right? like a, a series of sleeves and then each song, you know, with one song on each side would be in a sleeve. That's why we called it a record album, right? Because it was really more like a, a photo album filled with individual discs oh. after. Yeah. After the LP comes out, then you have all that music is on one disc that comes inside a single sleeve, but we continue to call it a record album. Right. And even today, like when Taylor Swift releases her, her next project, right. It will be called an album. Right. But of course, and that all goes back to the old 78 technology. Um, And of course also uh, APH was, Pressing records for the NLS, we were not competing with uh, other record pressing companies like RCA or DECA or any of these big record publishers. And so in the post-1940s music scene, there were a number of little companies that wanted to get into record production and sales, but they didn't have the the technological background to do it. Right. For instance, there was this guy named um, Nathan Sidney in uh, Cincinnati. He owned this little company called King Records. And uh, in order to uh, learn how to press records, he came down to the American Printing House for the Blind, uh, where, you know, even back then, as we do today, we give daily tours, right? And so uh, Sidney Nathan, you know, he, 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 he goes into the, into the, uh, into the plant and 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 that's where he kind of starts to learn how to press records 
ends up hiring away uh, our uh, record production manager, a guy named George, George Wetluff, to come up to Cincinnati and run the King Records record pressing operation. And King Records is responsible for releasing a whole slew of uh, what was then called race music, but would have been, we today would call it R&B, and what uh, and hillbilly music, which now we call bluegrass and country, um, and so helped to popularize R and B and and bluegrass and country music to a, a nation that was hungry for new musical styles. Um, so uh, the the printing house really actually had a lot of influence on these a lot of these companies uh, uh, learning how to press records by coming to a company who was not competing with the other record companies. You know, if you if you went to Decker, Columbia, or RCA, they didn't want you to learn how to press records, right? Because you'd be a competitor. But the printing house didn't care because we were making talking books for blind readers. Wow, that's really cool. So we we weren't really competing with any of them. We just- yes. So we didn't we didn't care if you came and borrowed our technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now, Mike, you know a lot about narrators and talk about some of the narrators from the past, present that have. Do you know if any of them have any particularly interesting roles on their resumes? Well, if if you were a television, an early television broadcaster in the 1950s at WAVE or WHAS, the two, the first two television stations in in Louisville, it's very likely that you were also doing a side gig reading talking books at the American Printing House for the Blind. So um, uh, William Gladden and uh, uh, Livingston Gilbert and um, uh, you know, the singing cowboy, uh, Randy Atcher, who, who was the host of a, uh, early morning, uh, kids cowboy show, uh, in, in the 1950s and sixties, uh, you know, Randy Atcher, the singing cowboy was one of our narrators. So if you grew up in Louisville in the 1950s and sixties, all the people who were on television were not all, but you know, a lot, a lot of them were also over here reading, uh, for us, um, was a guy named uh, Milton Metz who's famous nationally for his on the street uh, broadcasts and Milton was another one of our you know a great narrators just amazing voices uh, and because we've always used a lot of radio and television broadcasters and Louisville is also well known as a theater town I mean we have awesome regional theater here so then you have people like uh, Mitzi Friedlander you have people like Mitzi Friedlander who was the first young woman to graduate from the theater program at the University of Louisville started reading for us in 1963 and read her last book. I don't know, Maggie, something like 2015 or something like that. Literally read for, you know, like 50 years, uh, 60 years. Uh, Every book that every one of Sue Grafton's mystery novels, you know, A is for Alibi, you know, she wrote the whole series, M is for Murder. They were all narrated by Mitzi Friedlander. Uh, when, when you walk past Studio 3 uh, down in the studio today, it's you can almost hear Mitzi's voice echoing out of there. She read here for so long. And that was true of a lot of our narrators. And a lot of our narrators still today have been reading for us for a long, long time. And these voices, they become almost mystical friends uh to to our readers out there because i mean I, we had some people in the in the in the museum on a tour the other day and they talked about how how much the narrator's talent 
affects how much you enjoy the book to the point where instead of picking a book out because of its content matter, you might pick it out because it has a particular APH narrator whose voice you love. I can believe that. I can totally believe that it goes back to when um, I asked Maggie about how she, how she, you know, she picks the the narrator. You pick the right narrator for the right book. It is a fantastic ride. <laughs> so, well, I have a question, Maggie. How do you pick out somebody to read a cookbook? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh- it's basically who who's drawn who's drawing the short straw. No, not really. Um, <laughs> no, there are some voices that can really bring some energy to a cookbook, or who um, can like read through a list of ingredients um, in a very clear tone. Um, not all voices can really translate a, a list of ingredients and a list of steps in a recipe. Uh, to the reader in a way that would be easy for them to follow and understand. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it is a skill set. It's Yeah. Because like, if you're, if you're telling a story, right, you're reading a mm-hmm. novel, it has its own momentum, right? Mm-hmm. You, you get into the story itself and, and you begin interpreting it, but reading a cookbook seems like a really, like one of the more challenging projects that you all work on down there. Yeah. I'd say uh, on all, all stages of production, it's one of the more challenging um, types of material that we put out, for sure. And you you certainly need to make sure that all the uh, ingredient measurements are right. <laughs> yes, yes. It's you know, a lot of uh, a lot of repetition and a lot of accuracy. You know, thinking too, like I bet a cookbook for making drinks, maybe, you know, versus grilling. Those mm-hmm. are going to be two different types of ways they would be narrated, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Well, in some, especially especially now that we have like um, celebrity chefs and and very popular cookbooks out there um, that will have a more conversational tone, maybe, um, or have a particular you know celebrity voice attached to them. Um, oh. So we do take that into account too, like who is who is the original author behind this? And do I have a voice that kind of matches up um, with their kind of overall feel or sound? That was a good question, Mike. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) All right, Maggie. For those interested in accessing talking books produced by APH, can you talk about who can and how they can access those materials and what that means for the end users? Sure. Anyone who has access to NLS's full collection can find um, titles that APH records. Um, so specifically, anyone who has low vision, blindness, um, any kind of disability that prevents them from holding or reading a printed page. Um, this is a temporary or permanent disability. And this also, this includes those with reading disabilities. Um, the program's open to all residents of the United States and to American citizens who are living abroad. Um, you have to, uh, eligibility for the program must be determined by a competent authority per NLS. So like medical doctors, um, RNs, therapists, optometrists, um, and so on. Um, full information about eligibility um, can be found on the Library of Congress's website um, and information about how to apply for the service is also 
um, available there. Um, I know um, access to these materials, it, it's been life-changing for our end users. Um, I mean, the availability of commercial audiobooks is uh, uh, relatively recent. Um, the you know mainstream audience um, hasn't been using audiobooks for that long. Um, but access to these talking books that it's been making material available um, for years and years to those who otherwise wouldn't have access to um, all of this entertainment and information and education. So it's, um, it's a wonderful program that um, the library of Congress provides. Now, this is, this is, this is something I've been wondering for a while. What makes the audiobooks recorded by APH different than the average audio book you might find on audible? Um, great question. Um, the talking books are created with accessibility in mind. So um, the navigation uh, is typically much more extensive than what you would find in a commercial audiobook. Um, so where, you know, you'll download a book from Audible and you'll see a list of chapter, chapter, chapter. You'll just be able to skip through that. Um, the way we approach it is, you know, you, you read everything that's there. So if there's an author's note, it's there. If there's a preface, it's there. It's navigable. You can jump to it. Um, and the headings are there for you to really peruse what the entire content of the book is. Um, this is including um, supplemental material uh, found, especially like in a nonfiction book. So lists of resources, um, bibliographies, um, so it's, it's not the most, um, titillating material to read through. Um, but it is incredibly helpful to have, uh, to be able to skip through and find, you know, what is that book that they were referencing in this nonfiction book that, that I'm listening to. Um, so yeah, the number one thing is the accessibility factor. Um, it's, it's designed to put as much of what the sighted reader gets into the hands of the low vision or blind or otherwise physically disabled person. Um, and then also our books are recorded, you know, to NLS's very high standards. So they're recorded by highly trained teams of audiobook editors and professional narrators. Um, so not volunteers working out of their, you know, closets turned recording booths. These are recorded in uh, professional recording booths here at the printing house. Um, and this comes across in the quality of sound. And then the accuracy of the spoken word is accounted for by having that team, uh, not just a narrator, but also the audiobook editor, you know, working with them because they, they're there to provide pronunciation. They're there to provide some direction. Um, you know, you, you read this phrase a little, you know, it wasn't very clear. So go back and read that phrase over again. Or, um, you know, I don't think that really communicated the author's intent. Can we try that again? That sort of, um, you know, helpful direction. All of that uh, together kind of is what really sets apart the APH talking books from like a commercial mass-produced audiobook. One more question about the 
the those types the differences in the books versus talking books and audiobooks is can you talk about the range of titles recorded by the studio and how that might differ from the titles you find on Audible? Um, sure. I mean, we record all sorts of books. Um, so similar, similar to what you could find on Audible. Um, but in addition to, you know, whatever's popular at the moment, we also are recording books that are requested. Um, so we see all kinds of titles from your modern beach reads to cookbooks to sprawling historical volumes. Um, the range just boils down to what the patrons request and what the librarians at NLS want to add to the collection. My other question, beyond narration, what work is done to take a print book and create an accessible talking book? A, a lot of work is is put into it that you don't see uh, with the finished product. Um I mean, we, when we receive materials to record, there's a lot of front end work done, um, looking at again, casting. So who, what voice is going to be right for this book? Um, and then also, you know, researching, does this book have a lot of uh, content that needs researching? Is it historical? Are there a lot of, um, you know, various languages used or, um, maybe, complex terminology. Sometimes we'll have like a medical book. So that'll be a little bit more um, research heavy. Um, Then from there, there's also looking at the book itself, like what's the structure, what's the navigation, what will be the most helpful way to present this um, to the final end user. Um, And then once we get into the studio, the, you know, in real time recording that there's a lot of work that goes into it. It's not just um, are the words on the page being recorded, but is the author's intent being communicated? Um, You know, is, is like, even in a basic novel is the, is the conversation, does it sound like two people talking or does it just sound like someone reading off a page. Um, there's a lot of nuance involved there with the, nar- with the narration. Um, and then after the narration is done, we have the, the, the backend research. So we have uh, the proofreading. That's one of our audiobook editors will take the book and listen to it. Um, they'll speed it up so that they're not listening to it at the, that the slow real-time speed that they heard it in the studio. But um, so they'll listen to it. It'll sound like the, um, listening to the, the chipmunks at Christmas time. Um, and th- they will listen for any mistakes, any inaccuracies, um, any audio glitches, anything like that. And then that's sent back into the studio then for um, correcting any mistakes. And then that same audiobook editor will take it, um, take the, the f- corrected uh, complete audio and they will create the talking book from that. So there's a program that we run um, and many, many steps, uh, on our checklist to make sure everything is in tip top shape. And it's, yeah, it's a long, complex process. No, I believe you on that Maggie or Michael, are there any final things you would like to say? Is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up this interview? Um, I, I know, uh, on my part, I am just grateful to be involved with the studio. I feel a great responsibility, um, to be part of such a 
historical and meaningful program. Um, and, you know, honored to work with very talented narrators, very talented editors. Um, it's a it's a dream job. It really is. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to learn a little bit more about it. And I'll just say that the studio is one of our, you know, it's our best known program outside of, of the company. And whenever we have visitors who are blind, who are talking book listeners, they, they really, really love going down to the studio and getting to see uh, literally the books being made there right in front of them. So that's, it's really one of our, our it's just one of our more special programs. All right, Maggie and Michael, thank you so much for joining me today on Changemakers. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Sarah. Okay, now this one is really fun and I'm so excited to have him here. I have APH narrator Jack Fox here. Um, And again, like I said earlier, did you hear his voice at the beginning of this podcast? That is him. You hear his voice everywhere. And this is such a cool interview because it's almost like having Surrey talk and respond back to you literally in a conversation. Hello, Jack, and welcome to Changemakers. Thank you very much. I think I uh, said that at the start of the program, I believe. <laughs> oh, I, I do the opening for that. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> this is so cool. So yes, if you listen to the beginning of this podcast, this is the man that does it. This is his voice, Mr. Jack Fox. So welcome. This is so cool. Thank and got a bunch of questions, but just hearing hearing your voice just, you know, in airports and at the beginning of this podcast and then actually hearing it for this podcast and having it respond is just and having you respond is just so mind-blowing. Oh, it's this my is, pleasure, believe me. Sorry, I'm fan I'm I'm fangirling all over you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So first things first. Off the top, tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been a narrator, all of that. Well, let's see. I uh, have been a narrator at ATH actually since 1978, which is a long time. Uh, I began in radio when I was in high school in a little town called Harvard, Illinois. So I tell people I graduated from Harvard at 17. So, uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, with that till they find out the truth. Uh, but I uh, worked in radio at a, a station here in Louisville at WHAS. And uh, back in the uh, middle 70s, I left the station for just a short while to do some freelance work and some business projects. But I found that I needed a schedule because I would, at one o'clock in the afternoon, I was still in my pajamas if I didn't have something scheduled, you know. And my wife said, you need to have a schedule and get out of the house. And so I'd heard about APH and, uh, and reading uh, books and I applied and was accepted and scheduled myself at eight o'clock in the morning. So I would be up and out. And that's actually how it started. And then I fell in love with it and been there ever since. Uh, and read, they tell me, around 2,000 books over that period of time. So uh, that's how it all started. Wow. Now, did you, okay, so you had your background in radio, like you said. So so you were kind of used to being, reading and all of that. That is so yes, cool. The, this uh, is so cool. Most of, the, most of the narrators there at the printing house, and they're anywhere from 15 to 20 have been over the years. Most of them have been from broadcast uh, radio and television stations or actors. We have a large acting community here in Louisville. And most of the narrators have been from that. And I, I fit in that category. So cool. So cool. Now, yeah. for those listening, aside from the beginning of this podcast, can you tell us some of the places we might have heard your voice? 
Uh, let's see. Um, there's a, a, a Bats Museum, Louisville Slugger Museum here in Louisville. And for years, I think it's still there. My voice was there as you took the tour, uh, describing each stop. You'd come to a stop where they laid out the bats, another where they printed them, another where they uh, uh, got them ready for display. And my voice was on a, a video there describing all those stops. So it was there. Uh, you mentioned the start of Game Changers. Uh, do that. And I was also in a uh, selected for a movie, The Shape of Water, which won the Academy Award in 2018. Uh, as a result of my voice being in airports, evidently the director, Guillermo del Toro, was going to the LAX airport and heard my voice and said, I want that voice for my movie. And I'm in there, I don't know, 15 or 20 times doing security announcements. You never see me, but my voice is doing security announcements for the facility where the filming takes place. So uh, you'll hear it there. And who knows where I'll pop up. I'll most most of the notoriety I get, though, is for bugging you on the moving sidewalks in Amer America's airports or telling you to make sure the luggage you claim is your own or uh, don't violate the no parking zone. I get a lot of notoriety from that. I tell people every week at church, I have at least two or three people say, hey, I was in Tulsa and you helped me through the baggage area or something like that. So uh, that's that's going to be a claim to fame, I guess, for a while. Oh, my goodness. So you've read, but please, what do, what do you say when you're approaching, you are approaching the end of the moving sidewalk, but please step Follow with caution. The sidewalk, please stand to the right to allow those wishing to walk to pass safely on the left. So <laughs> I'll, I'll bug you from wherever you are. I'm in a camera somewhere looking down at you. Oh my goodness. So you just talked up, you talked about how you need to get out of the house and you signed yourself up at 8 a.m. So is that how you got into narrating books or yeah, did you just? Yeah. No, that's that's it. I, I only do books at, at uh, APH. I don't do any commercial books. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've, I've been there and that's how it started. And it started just to get me out of the house and have a routine, but I quickly loved it and uh, enjoy every facet of it. So I continue to do it. This is so cool. How long does it take for you to narrate a book? That varies from book to book, depending on uh, how long it is, of course, and the complexity of it. Uh, I would think I would average reading about 30 to 50 pages a day, depending on uh, on the style of book. Some books are easier they just flow. Others are very technical. Or I have uh, I have to struggle sometimes with foreign languages getting the accent right for the uh, for the narrator and every, uh, for the uh, monitor. And uh, so that will take me a little longer. As I said, some are very technical. So if I read uh, 30 to 50 pages a day, and it was a 300-page book, and I read a two-hour session, uh, maybe two or three times a week. So you can just put, uh, that's the yardstick I would use, somewhere anywhere from two weeks. I read one one time that was like 600 pages. It took a month and a half, I think, to get that done. It had some complexities to it and some complications but uh, wow. generally you can uh, a book in a week week and a half two weeks depending on how many sessions you're doing now you've been doing this for a really long time so clearly you must love it what do you love most about narrating these these books i do um first of all i just love the service to uh, to the community and I love being a part of the APH community itself. Uh, it's a great group of people. They're dedicated to their mission. And we're down in the basement, the narrators and the, this talking book studio are in the basement. But uh, we do venture upstairs once in a while for uh, just various things. But I just like uh, meeting the people who work there. And uh, uh, as I said, their, their attention to the tale and their dedication to the mission. So I, I like that. 
Uh, I love feedback. We get uh, feedback from listeners from time to time, and I I love that. It also uh, has me read books that I normally wouldn't take time to read just because I'm busy or something else, and so I I read books that are outside my wheelhouse, so to speak, and that's that's a reward. I gain a little knowledge. A little knowledge makes you dangerous sometimes, but uh, I enjoy that. Now, when you're preparing to narrate a book, how do you prepare? Can you just walk me through what you do just through the day? Mm -hmm. When I get a book, I I, I want to read ahead of time before my session. That that improves the efficiency. Uh, So I'll uh, spend time looking through the portion that I think I'll read at least the next session. Sometimes I get hooked on the book and I read the whole thing, you know, in one sitting or something. But I'll look ahead. I look for uh, difficult words or I look for uh, where the story is going, or uh, different things that I might want to emphasize. So um, that's what I'll do. Then when I go into the studio, we have a uh, monitor who sits in a room opposite me and and monitors my mistakes and uh, corrects uh, mispronunciations and things like that. So we'll sit there during that time and uh, read, and that person will stop me if they need to, and we digitally now can back up and and correct things as we go along. Uh, That's what a session would be like. Sometimes the sessions then are going back to uh, make corrections on what we've done. We have a a monitor while we're reading, and then a proofreader goes through the whole thing, and will send back corrections to us, and we'll spend hopefully not long having to do many of those, but sometimes if you have a a word you've mispronounced or something like that, have to go back and correct all those in a book. Uh, but that's pretty much what a day would be like. I'd prepare going in and then uh, get comfortable in the studio and begin my session and read for two hours. At one point, several years ago, we were reading two two-hour sessions per day, so four hours a day. That was a long stretch, uh, but we got a lot a lot done, and that's pretty much what a day would be like. So before you start reading, start your narrating, is there anything you do to prepare to just sort of warm up your voice? Do you sing on the way in? Do you sip some tea? I actually do. I actually do, uh, believe it or not. And the people sitting in stoplights next to you must think I'm crazy because I'm sitting, I try to do it inconspicuously, <laughs> but sometimes I belt it out. <laughs> but those are warm ups. Yeah, I do warm up. And I, uh, I sing in the shower in the morning. That seems to get my voice going over the years. People ask me, uh, I have a fairly melodious voice. People say, do you sing? I say, well, I'm pretty good in the shower. I don't know if it, it translates anyplace else, but I'm pretty good in the shower. But I do each morning. I sing as I'm showering and uh, warms up my voice and loosens it up. And then I do some warm-up exercises as I uh, as I drive to the studio. A uh, little me, me, mama, move, things like that. And uh, little tricks you learn to uh, warm your voice up and give it a little uh, a little uh, variety and range. So uh, I do that uh, every time before I go in. Mm-hmm. I don't uh, don't drink hot tea. I always have a cup of coffee with me. Some people accuse me of having that cup surgically attached to my hand. Uh, I don't know if coffee is good for you or not, but it helps my voice. It loosens it up and gives it a, a warmness. I also keep some uh, throat lozenges and sprays handy in the studio if I need that sometimes. So what's the hardest thing you've narrated? Uh, the hardest thing would be a book with lots of uh, Russian in it <laughs> or German or something like that. <laughs> okay. the, the most difficult thing I ever had to do was years ago, 
we did a lot of magazines at APH, and one was Sports Illustrated, which I enjoy. I'm a sports fan, and I would read about the baseball players and the football players. But one year, we recorded the whole uh, the whole range of statistics for every Major League Baseball player. And it was their at-bats, their how they batted left hand, right hand, their age, their weight, how many curveballs they hit, how many times they walked, how many home runs they hit, how many doubles, triples, and other uh, arcane statistics for every major league player. And that took forever to do and tremendous concentration because, uh, you know, it was small print and had to have a, a follow the line all the way across for every every stat. So that was probably the most difficult thing I had to do, uh, along with books that are uh, very technical. Um, I've had I've done some recipe books, which were kind of interesting, but still you get a little repetitious there with a quarter tablespoon of this and a half teaspoon of that. Uh, those are those were difficult for me. Difficult, maybe not the right word, but tedious. Huh. Wow. Yeah. This is so fun to hear. This is so interesting. a challenge I have, but I'm a kind of emotional guy. And when I get to real sentimental stuff, it's hard to keep my emotions under control. You know, if a, a dad and his son or a, a dad and his daughters, I've got two daughters and uh, two granddaughters. If I'm reading something like that, very emotional, I have to take a few runs at it sometimes. And then sometimes if you get into a situation where it's just hilarious <laughs> to stop and, and uh, make sure you're, you're not just laughing out loud, although it, sometimes you, you can't keep that up, filters through. And I think it adds color to the reading, but uh, I've had a couple of sessions where both the monitor and I, for some reason, were on the floor laughing and we have to stop and back up and do it again until we, we got it with some semblance of dignity to it. That was uh, difficult, but fun. Now, what's something people would be surprised to learn about the narration process or the audiobook narration in general? Uh, let's see. I'd have to think about that. What Everything we do, we take for granted. So I don't know what would particularly surprise people. <clears throat> Maybe not be surprised, but enjoy knowing there's a lot of camaraderie among the APH people. We have, as I said, I think 15 to 20 people at some time. Not We're not all there at the same time, but we have a good camaraderie. We enjoy each other. Uh, we enjoy the people we work with, the monitors and the proofreaders. Uh, we get along well. Uh, we have 12 studios at present. Uh, we're in a little bit of a uh, slowdown period right now. We don't have the number of books at APH we've had in years past, so uh, we don't have as many people uh, in the studios as we had at one time. Some of the proofreaders are working from home. And um, then COVID hit us also. COVID shut us down for a little while. So we're getting back in the groove from that. Uh, but um, I guess just the, uh, the fact that we're down in a basement at APH, uh, we don't see the light of day down there. So uh, that, that might surprise people also. Uh, we enjoy having tours come through and getting to see some live people once in a while. So I guess uh, I don't know if anything would, would particularly um, surprise people, but that, that's, a, that's a picture of what we do. Now, when you're not doing narration, what do you like to do? do you, what can you be found doing when you're not down in the basement reading, narrating? Well, I like to spend time with my family. I have uh, two daughters, which one of my daughters, Jill, has been at the printing house and a narrator for uh, about 20 years, I think. And uh, another daughter, Heather, worked there for a little while as a monitor. Uh, we had an interesting situation one time. 
uh, Heather was my monitor on this particular session. She wasn't normally. And I had to read a book. And that, that's another area that's difficult. We've got some pretty steamy scenes in there sometimes and some language that is uh, not always um, uh, above board. And in fact, I, I've had some blind readers at my church and they say, how could you read that? I said, well, I don't, I don't write them. I just read them. But anyway, Heather was monitoring this session and it was some pretty rough language in there. And I was kind of embarrassed and everything. And she couldn't wait to run down the hall and tell her sister, you won't believe what dad just said. So, uh, uh, (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Uh, let's see. Uh, I, I like to play golf. Uh, back to my family. I spend time with my family, my daughters and granddaughters. I enjoy them a lot. Uh, and my wife, we like to travel. Uh, we're on a quest to catch all the major league baseball parks in the country. We've got, uh, 16 under our belt, 14 to go and have plans to maybe catch two or three more this summer. Uh, I like to golf, uh, get out and, uh, Play as I get older, I, the only thing that keeps me going is that as I get older, I may be able to shoot my age one day. When I get to be 95, maybe I can. <laughs> but uh, church, we're very involved at our church. We go to St. Matthew's Baptist Church here in town, which is a great congregation, and we're pretty involved there uh, and uh, enjoy the people there. But as I said, traveling is also, we like to take long trips, but we also, my wife and I, take little day trips, find interesting out-of-the-way places and get off the major highways and just find little towns or little uh, spots of interest. Uh, We enjoy that. Very nice. Very nice. Very nice. And I am talking to your daughter, Jill. She's going to be a part of this podcast too. Yes. So I'm really excited to talk to her. I see it runs in the family then. (laughs) She's she's, uh, she's very good. She's very good. Now, for those listening that are interested in getting into narration, what advice would you have to give someone? You know, it's kind of interesting. Everybody, uh, I, I relate this to narration and, and voiceover work. Everybody who has a good voice, um, people say, "Well, you should you should read books or you should be on the radio or something like that." But it takes it takes some training. I would say just first of all, explore it uh, for narrating books. See if you can get in touch with a studio and see if you can visit them. That's how I started radio. I just went to a radio station one day and kind of showed up, and I emptied. Crash cans and all. you wouldn't do that at APH, but get to know uh, Maggie Davis or whoever is there uh, as the director and talk to some people and visit with them a little bit. Visit other other audiobook studios, uh, visit with them and see what they require. Uh, and then uh, some trainings required also. You have to learn how to use your voice, how to preserve it, uh, how to be uh, uh, demonstrative in, in your reading, uh, take some acting classes, things like that. Uh, that would be the best advice I would give. Now, for when you're in the booth, what's your favorite genre of book to read? Do you have a favorite off the top of your head? Uh, sort of. I uh, I like to read a good mystery book with a little touch of humor into it. Um, one that comes to my mind right off is the James Lee Burke series, and it has a detective named Dave Robichaux, and uh, I like those a lot. Uh, so a good mystery book with a little touch of humor. I like humor books. I became dangerous for a while there. People avoided me in the hallways at the printing house. I would read uh, comedy books of uh, the Bob Hope 
joke book and the Milton Berle joke book. And I read some Stephen Wright stuff. And of course, I loved it. I want to share with everybody. And they'd see me coming, tell them, oh, not another one. Get out of his way. He's going to tell you another joke here. So uh, uh, that was wild. I like to read bios. They're inspirational. Uh, can't think of any right off the top of my head. Uh, probably the favorite book, and it'd be hard to pick a favorite, but probably my favorite book is one of the early ones I read. It was called Smith and other events. It's still available at uh, APA or the National Library of, uh, Library of Congress and their books. It was about um, the Chilcotin people in the uh, northwest part of uh, Canada. And just some great human interest stories and humor to it and heartwarming. That was probably my favorite book of all time, Smith and Other Events, Tales of the Chilcotin. Well, I'll be sure to put that link in the show notes for anybody interested and can learn and can learn a little bit more about that book. Um, when you read, are you assigned to a full series when they come out or are, are you just on one book and then the, 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 the next book in the series, it's another person? It varies. Uh, most of the time, historically, if there was a series, you would read all of it, but some series are so long uh, that uh, there's a, there's a series of Westerns by William W. Johnstone. He's got so many in there. I've read a bunch of them, but other narrators have read others, too. John Polk has read some. Uh, Bruce Hunty was a narrator and read a lot of those. Uh, but uh, generally, they like to, or have in the past anyway, have a person read the whole series that for continuity and, uh, uh, and tone and all that sort of thing. I, I think it would be a little strange to read four books of a series and then switch uh, narrators and have a whole different approach or something. Maybe it improved it. I don't know. But uh, generally speaking, they have tried to assign the same person to the series if they could. Although I have picked up a series before where someone was not available anymore or was not available temporarily. I picked up some of those series and I'm sure other people have done the same thing with me. Okay. Cause um, that's that I get it that, you know, you want to have that continuity or yeah, yeah that makes sense. You get excited well, about that. Also, when we, yeah. we pick up a book that somebody else has read, we go back and look at their pronunciation list because we want to make sure pronouncing names of people and towns the same way. Uh, they try to keep that continuity. There you go. Good to, and that I it's th see those are things that you know as the casual person would have never would have been, but it makes sense it's when you, when it's pointed out yeah. that does. So you get invited to speak at conferences and events, and I know there's quite a fan base out there for you. What does it feel like, and what does it mean to you to to know that children and adults have grown up listening to you and are excited to meet? Yeah, I, I, love, the voice. I really do. Uh, Jill and I go out together. We've done that together some, uh, but I've spoken to conferences around the country. First of all, just get it to get uh, meet the people in person. Uh, I always enjoy that. When I was on the radio, people would hear a voice. And they'd meet you and say, oh, that's what you look like. They're never sure about that. you know. <laughs> so I like to meet people, uh, go to the conferences and uh, get feedback for one thing, find out what people like and what they don't like. But it just makes a difference. When I started in radio, I had a lady who was the owner and manager of the station. And she said, Jack, if you're reading something, 
get a picture in your mind of what you're reading about. And that will color your inflection and uh, your emotions and things like that. So when I go out, remember, we're recording in a little basement studio with no windows or anything. So when I go out to the conferences and meet people, I see faces when I'm reading. I'll, I'll remember somebody in Alabama or somebody in Florida or somebody in Ohio and uh, that they like that particular author, or that particular style. And that helps me. It helps cover my uh uh, cover my emotions and uh, and the inflection and everything, but uh, it just means a lot to to meet the people. And then you do. I've met some people that said, "Oh, I listened to you when I was a kid," and they're fifty years old or whatever, you know. So <laughs> that's a great feeling. But Jill and I go out, and one time, uh, her daughter Frances, who at that time was about eight or nine, went with us, and that was a thrill. They even had Frances come up and say a few things. Uh, but uh, Jill and I played well off each other. We enjoyed that. <laughs> Now, is Frances a budding narrator as well? I'm not sure. She has done some acting or some, she's appeared on some commercials and things like that. She has a great little voice. I would love that. But uh, I don't know if she'll, if she'll do that or not. I hope oh, so. Oh, man, that's too funny. Now, when you're out at conferences and interacting with fans, have you had any strange encounters? Yes. Um <laughs> One time, I was actually not at a not a, a, a conference for uh, uh, blind people, but I was at a conference for another business conference in Atlanta. There were a bunch of people there, and I'm standing talking with somebody in conversation, and I hear this voice behind me said, Jack Fox. And I turned around. I didn't know the person. And it was a young blind man. He said, oh, I've read your books for years. I'd recognize your voice anywhere. That was great. And then there's a, another uh, narrator named Michael McCullough. I don't think she's reading right now, but she read for years. And years ago, she was in Chicago visiting and was on a bus, <clears throat> took the wrong bus and was lost. She had no idea where she was on the bus. She went up to the bus driver and was asking for help and <clears throat> heard a voice say, Michael McCullough, I've read your books for years. So a blind person helped her get on the right bus and get back where she was going. So I thought that was a very fitting. Yeah. It was wow. great. Now, what challenges do you face or have you faced in your job as a narrator? Uh, let's see. Um, well, first of all, just keeping your voice in shape, uh, fighting against colds and things like that, um, keeping our energy up for your two-hour session. That's a pretty long time to sit there and read and, and stay, keep the same intensity level uh, or, or uh, keep your energy up that long. Uh, that takes a little little extra effort. Uh, you have good days and bad days. Sometimes you don't feel as good going in. You have to work on that to make yourself be in the moment and uh, capture what's happening on the page. Technology, you have to keep up with that. I've watched it go from, I did not record books when they put them on the, on the big vinyl discs. I came just right after that, but we had huge 16-inch reels we recorded on, which uh, was a challenge when we tried to um, do corrections because uh, they would just mark it with a piece of paper in this large spool. And if you lost control you lost, of, the, of the rewind, you lost all the pieces of paper. But now it's digital and much, much better. So that adapting to that technology has been uh, not a challenge, but uh, something we had to do, and it's worked out very well. But really just the, the energy and keeping the voice in shape and uh, trying to get into the mood of a book are the, are the biggest challenges I would face. Well, I will say one other thing about meeting people. I love it when the tours come through APH. Uh, tours come through regularly, and uh, if I'm aware of them and they ask us to stop, I love to go up and just say hi to the people and, 
and meet them. So if you're listening and you come through on a tour and I'm reading, say, hey, can I meet Jack? Uh, I, I'd love to do that. Oh, that's so nice. That's so nice. My final question that I always like to ask is, is there anything else you would like to say about the world of narrating, being a narrator, anything? Um, no, just uh, that I love it. I love doing it. I love the people, and I'm very proud of APH and uh, their overall, not just the talking books, but all the tremendous services uh, they they provide and, and continue to research to find out how they can get all those services better. I've been very impressed with that. And uh, people who show up for work every day with that mission in mind. So I would just say keep up the good work, and I'm proud to be part of it. Oh, Jack, this is so cool. Thank you so much for joining me today on Changemakers. Pleasure. Thank you. Now we're keeping it in the family with this next interview. I have Jill Fox here. This is Jack Fox's daughter. Hello, Jill, and welcome to Changemakers. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And do you mind just to tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, I have been reading at the Printing House for the Blind for since 1996. I just looked that up and find it hard to believe, but uh, I've been there for a long time. My father is Jack Fox. Uh, my sister actually worked there for a brief time as an audiobook uh, editor, so we like to keep it in the family. I have a 13-year-old daughter, and I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Wonderful. Yes, we just we just heard from um, your father, Jack Fox, which was really fun, really fun. And he brought you he did mention you and your sister. And he even said that you're what is it your daughter who has, I guess, been in a commercial or two or something? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which was really fun. So, yeah, keeping it all in the family. <laughs> we try. <laughs> I'm afraid some of our stories are going to overlap. So you just have to bear with me. <laughs> That's okay. We love to hear them. So it, it, we're going to hear them from your perspective. So okay. we just talked to your dad, Jack Fox, but tell us, um, tell, where have we heard your voice? Well, um, over the years, I have done several local voiceover commercial type things. So that's, it's been a while since I've done much of that, where you'd probably hear me now. Um, I work for Louisville Public Media our public radio stations, primarily um, WFPK, the news channel, and WUOL, the classical music channel. I do, I'm sort of their staff announcer down there. I used to host a weekend edition there on WFPL. I haven't done that for a few years, but that's mostly where you'd hear me. Awesome. That's so interesting. It's always just interesting where you might hear that person's voice. So, I'm going to assume I already know how you got into narrating books, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's one of my questions. Tell us how you got into narrating books and what type of training did you go through just to prepare for that? Well, um, it was never an ambition of mine. I didn't grow up. So my dad, as you know, we moved here when he, I was about three years old. And we moved here so he could work at WHAS. So he's always been in radio my whole life. And I kind of took it for granted and would spend weekends going down to the station as I grew up. And then I always knew that he worked at the printing house. But, you know, when I was a kid, didn't really understand what that was or what he did. Um, when I was about 16 years old, I think he started talking about auditions there and I was spending a summer working with him, helping him out at the radio station. And I kind of started thinking maybe 
maybe it would be something I could be interested in doing. But again, didn't take it too seriously. Uh, I think I actually auditioned when I was around 16. I mean, looking back, that was there's no way I could have ever been approved. But it was a good experience just to audition and uh, just sort of see what it was all about. And again, it kind of planted a little seed in my mind. I went away to college and I majored. I got a BFA in photography. I wasn't thinking about performance at all, although as a kid and maybe an older teen, I was interested in theater. Um, you know, I did school plays, I did summer workshops, things like that. But um, again, never pursued it seriously. When I graduated from college, I came back home just to kind of settle and figure out what my next steps might be. I didn't really have a plan. And again, my dad said, well, they're having auditions at the printing house. Maybe you want to think about that. So I, I did, and I prepared a reading of fiction and nonfiction, and I went in, and they don't do it this way now, but you used to go in and you would just sit around a table with everyone else that was going to audition that day, and you just read your pieces. And the then studio director, Raymond Randall, would give you a call and tell you if they wanted you to come back in and record something there in-house to submit to NLS. And so I was one of maybe two people that day who got callbacks and I came in and recorded some things and have been there ever since. But I never had specific formal training in narration. And it wasn't, it certainly wasn't the thing that it is now. There weren't, I know there were certainly audiobooks, but it just wasn't, it wasn't the industry that it is now. So you've been narrating, you said since 1996, right? Yes. Wow. So you've narrated <laughs> quite a few. Over the years, is is there any type of character you, you've come to realize that you like to narrate in any kind that you're just like, I don't want to say that you don't like to narrate, but any types of characters you prefer to narrate? Well, I was thinking about this question and actually I got on um, the NLS site to just sort of remind myself because I've, it turns out they say that in their catalog, I have 1,446 or 49 titles. Now that's got to include maybe some magazines that I've done too. But um, of that, I don't know, it's kind of changed over time right now what I enjoy and I don't get as much of it as I used to. I like recording young adult fiction because there's just more of a, of a variety there. There tends to be more energy, more opportunities for energy, and you can just kind of have fun with characters. Um, in terms of what I like to read, um, I like, I guess, historical fiction. When I think about some of the books that I've most enjoyed, that's a genre. Historical fiction or make mysteries. Again, you just have some opportunities for a little more, little more drama, I guess. And to get into that drama, um, I, I, as I was, you know, coming up with this podcast idea, I was like, narrating is a form of acting. I, I'm going to assume that that's cut clearly for, you know, when, when you've been in your world for so long, it duh. But for me, as I'm thinking, I was just like, you know, this is like really another form of acting. You're using your voice. It's voice acting, of course. But how do you get into character and what are some of the things that you do? Well, it's interesting. Um recording audiobooks for NLS because they 
they don't want they don't want you to act it. You're supposed to narrate, but that's completely subjective. And where is the line between acting and narrating? I try to think in terms of what I like to hear. So I listen to audiobooks quite often and uh, just for pleasure, but I always have my ear tuned a little bit to like, oh, how is this person handling this? Um, and just general pacing and, and voice quality. Uh, so that's maybe primarily what I do is I just think about what I would like to listen to. And then in terms of characterizations, if it's sometimes it's written very clearly in a book, how someone is supposed to sound or how they look. And if it's more a question of a physical description, I try to tie it maybe to somebody I know, or if it reminds me of a character I've seen in a movie. And then I'll think about that as I'm recording or reading in that voice. Um, the same holds true for accents, if you have to do accents. And over the years, NLS has kind of flipped on that and they really don't want us, they want there to be more of a suggestion and less than a less than a full-on accent. So again, I mean, I try to anchor it to something that I know and use that as uh, an influence, if that answers your question. Now, when you're not in the booth and you're not working, what is it that you like to do? What are some of your hobbies? Well, I have a 13-year-old daughter and I recently bought her a trampoline. So I spend a lot of time with her out on the trampoline. Um, we also like to, when I've got free time, mostly on the weekends now, I've gotten her into, um, I've always loved to take long scenic drives. So we'll do that. And I will try to find uh, little antique shops or yard sales or flea markets that we can go to. And other than that, we, uh, I'm kind of a homebody. I like to be at home with our dog and our cat. And I like to, well, I don't know if I should say I love to work in the yard, but I've got a lot of work to do in the yard. <laughs> and so I like to like to do that when I can. Now, we asked your father the same question, and I would like to hear what you have to say. What advice would you give someone who's interested in possibly pursuing um, a career in being a narrator? Well, again, I mean, it's changed so much from when I started. I would say um, try to lose preconceptions you have about what it means to narrate. I find some of the most irritating and cloying narration is done when somebody thinks like, this is what a narrator sounds like. I think just kind of be natural. I think um, take classes, you know, understand the business, understand what it is, take classes if you can find them. Um, and again, try to try to find your own voice instead of thinking you know what you're supposed to do. You've already, you said earlier what your favorite genre was. Now, what's the favorite book that you've ever narrated? Okay, so I was, that's this, that was the reason that I went back to look mm -hmm. at the NLS catalog because I hate to say it, but quite often, I, if I'm not reading the book, I've already forgotten it. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll finish a book, start a new one, and then I can't remember them mm -hmm. what came before <laughs> because a lot of the things that I read are maybe not things that I would choose for myself. But what came to mind immediately is, and I haven't, I don't remember the last one of these that I read, but there was um, the Maisie Dobbs series. She's a, a young woman 
who was a nurse in World War One. She is out of nursing. The war is over, and she becomes a becomes a detective. But it's uh, I don't know. The character is so rich and written so well. It was so easy to read, and I just connected with connected with her right off the bat. Uh, and I don't exactly know why, but it was such a such a joy to read, and I looked forward. Anytime I got one, uh, I really looked forward to reading it. I find them very interesting and I enjoyed the characters. Okay, nice. And I'll make sure to put a link to those in the show notes for those listening that want to connect with that series. Rosemary had something to say. <laughs> the dog agreed to. Yes. All she right. Did. So are there any challenges you face in your job as a narrator? Well, um, on the lighter side, <laughs> sometimes, uh, like I said, you don't, you're not always connecting with the material, but you're in there and you, you want to do a good job. But sometimes I find that, uh, the rhythm, the rhythm of the book is just not mine. And I find it so frustrating and difficult to find the tone, I guess. Um, so there's that. I mean, there's that's just the mechanics of reading. I will say that, and this I don't get stuff like this very often, but once I had a child, it it's very hard for me to read anything about violence against a child. You know, it's never never a picnic, but I almost can't do it anymore. Exactly. And I and I get that a hundred percent too. You know, um, just thinking about the challenges. I think another one that, but I feel this could be for you and for me, for, for a lot of people out there, AI, the rise of AI and everything that it's doing and can do. I've been seeing lately, they are recreating um, singers' voices and yeah, over other songs. And it sounds just like that artist and you know and then it's like i'm seeing things about ai on uh, i do the public relations so it's ai on writing press releases and it, let it write it for you and then i'm just thinking this stuff is really having the potential to put put people out of jobs yeah <laughs> although i mean there's no heart and soul to ai so i i feel like that has to come in play at some point i and I, and that's the thing yes but well, well, you know, well, others well it agree. depends on how that's valued, I guess. Mm -hmm. There you go. Because sometimes we can see how that can be va not valued so much. Exactly. You know, bottom line is valued versus the heart. Exactly. Exactly. But yes. I've been seeing a lot more of that. And that's really just becoming unnerving just as a, as a human, but as a human in my position. So I feel like yeah, I feel that for a lot of, a lot of positions out there as technology starts to take the place of other of humans. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, my last question, I always like to ask, do you have any final thoughts about your time as a narrator? Um, anything, any experiences you want to share? Anything like that you want to leave with our viewers? Well, I was um, looking over some questions that you had sent ahead. And one thing that stood out to me was you asked about maybe going to conventions or places where we get to meet the listeners yes, and what yes. that means to us. And I will say that is, it is so personally rewarding, but it also is such a tangible reminder of the reason that we do what we do. You know, we go in to the studios at APH every day and we're down there in a basement, a windowless basement, and we're doing the job of reading these things. And sometimes with certain books, certainly, 
you're thinking about pronunciation and you're thinking about consistency and you're thinking about the mechanics of it and you lose sight of the reason that you're doing it. And I just have to say that um, going and seeing people and meeting people is such a reminder that what it's such a privilege to be able to do the job that I do. And I'm so grateful. That's awesome. And your dad did mention how you, you and him have gone to conventions and, and um, people just go nuts over both of you all. And there's been some instances where he said um, that a narrator, well, I guess, I don't know if it was him, but it was a narr- another well-known narrator kind of got a little lost traveling and it was another blind or low vision individual or excuse me, and it was another individual who was blind or low vision that provided assistance to them because they knew their <laughs> voice they heard their voice and i've always imagined how crazy would it be you know if you're calling i don't know if you're on support on hold with customer support and you hear the little you know <laughs> voice talking back to you and you're like that's that's me <laughs> you know that's always such a weird that that always feels like it would be such a weird feeling i have no idea but that's super cool yeah but um yeah jill i would like to thank you so much for coming on today and talking to me on change makers Well, thank you again for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Changemakers. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. This was a really fun one. I put links in the show notes to the APH Studio, the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled, and the favorite books mentioned during the interviews. Also, if you have any topics you would like to hear for future podcasts, just email communications at aph.org, communications at aph.org. Again, thank you so much for listening. And as always, be sure to look for ways you can be a change maker this week.